Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan. My guest this week, I'm super excited about it, is once again Eric Glitzenstein. And he's going to be telling us about this incredibly important and, I might add, successful, it's always nice to get a successful case to talk about, entitled National Resources Defense Council versus the United States Department of the Interior. You might have heard about this case. There was a lot about it online. It's based in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which is perhaps not the most famous of the federal environmental statutes, but it is actually one of the oldest. And I think it's incredibly important. Well, I think I'm not the only one. If you care in any way whatsoever about birds, you can take my word for it without this statute. There would not be a whole lot of birds left. Here, we'll be talking about the act's recent, very creative reinterpretation by the Trump administration, which simply vitiated the act's prescriptions on killing birds. <laughs> you know, what the hell? And it's already and would have continued to result in the deaths of innumerable birds. So this case was huge. This case is huge. We don't even know whether the case is over, but at the moment, uh, it's a successful outcome. Before we get to that interview, I'd just like to take a moment to ask for your support for our hen house, which is, of course, the not-for-profit entity that produces this podcast, along with the Our Hen House podcast. And if you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. You can join our flock for $10 a month, or you can just make a one-time donation in any amount you're comfortable with. And, you know, of course, we know these are hard times for a lot of people, and this is meant for those who are able. And if you are able, we would appreciate it so much. I think our supporters are always familiar with the fact that they are helping to provide animal-friendly media, not just to themselves, but to others, many students, whoever, who just can't afford to right now contribute, but uh, I'm sure very much appreciate the fact that others who can't afford to do, and we appreciate it as well. If, if you haven't yet done so, please check out the Our Hen House podcast, which is the other production. And I co-host that podcast along with Jasmine Singer and a few recent episodes that might be of interest include episode 555 featuring Brooke Haggerty and Joe Anderson of Faunalytics. And they speak about how effective research impacts animal advocacy. And episode 553 was a great one with Katrin Harriman of the Johns Hopkins Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing. And she was discussing this amazing new tome that she co-edited and contributed to animal experimentation, working towards a paradigm change. Two incredibly important interviews among the many that, that, that we produce on our hen house. So I hope you check that out, and uh, let's get to the interview. Eric Linsenstein is the Director of Litigation at the Center for Biological Diversity, which is, of course, a national conservation and wildlife protection organization, which you can find at biologicaldiversity.org. And Eric oversees and coordinates the center's litigation, which is conducted by more than 50... I, I just didn't even know their litigation department was that big, but it's huge. Uh, so they have more than 50 in-house attorneys, and they also use outside counsel. So they are seriously major players in this world. Prior to joining the center, Eric was co-founder and managing partner of Meyer Glitzenstein and Eubanks, LLP, which was a public interest law firm in Washington, D.C., did a great deal of animal law work. Uh, Eric's also a lecturer in law at Harvard Law School, where he will be teaching wildlife law in spring 2021. I wish I could take that. Eric is really super smart. He's super knowledgeable. And he's also just crystal clear. He's, you, you can really follow what he's saying. So listen up. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Eric. Great to be here. I'm super excited to have you. I was just saying before we started that this case that we are talking about left me a little perplexed in some places and I got a little lost in the weeds. But I'm relying on you to to guide me out of those weeds, and because this is a this is a very cool case. It's Natural Resources Defense Council versus um, the U.S. Department of the Interior, and people have probably heard of it a bit because it's made quite a splash. And it's about I don't think we've ever spoken about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act before on the podcast, so it's a very very cool law. It's a very old law. Can you just kind of start by telling us its history a bit and in, kind of in general terms what it does? Uh, sure. It's one of the earliest of the federal conservation statutes, and it actually was designed initially to implement a treaty 
uh, that was entered into between the United States and Great Britain, which at that time was acting on behalf of Canada, part of the uh, British Empire at that stage. And the treaty and then the implementing legislation uh, was designed to address uh, what was seen as a huge threat to migratory birds in Canada and the United States and actually throughout North America, which was focused at that time on overhunting, excessive killing of uh, a number of migratory birds of people of red history, herons, feathers, uh, egrets, feathers being used for hats and that sort of thing. And so these treaty, the treaty that was entered into uh, was really designed to uh, address that, but also other threats to birds. And a very broad statute uh, enacted in 1918 that makes it illegal to generally kill or take migratory birds without authorization from the Interior Department. And specifically, that's been really entrusted to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The statute has been amended over the years in a number of ways, but the focus has really remained on preventing unauthorized killing or taking of migratory birds. And others implementing treaties have come along, uh, entered into with uh, Mexico, Japan, and the uh, USSR, now Russia. Uh, But basically, over the course of time, while threats to birds have changed, and that's really a lot of what this case, the case we're talking about, really focuses on the overarching purpose of the statute to protect migratory bird populations from being decimated by human activities has really remained the same. This covers really a lot of birds, right? A lot of birds are considered migratory birds. Yeah, the vast majority of birds um, that we are familiar with uh, from the ones that people see in their backyards, uh, you know, cardinals, blue jays, sparrows, to more exotic birds, people engage in bird watching, songbirds. Almost invariably, these are covered by the MBTA. The statute actually covers more than a thousand bird species, uh, really, the vast majority of bird species that people encounter are familiar with. So not just the sort of traditional game birds like, you know, ducks and and geese, uh, but really a whole host of bird species that run the gamut from, you know, the most obscure to the most common birds that people are familiar with from what's putting out their bird feeders and, you know, watching the birds that they love, which is something that many people are enjoying doing these days, you know, when other activities are more limited. But yeah, it's a very comprehensive statute that covers a huge number of bird species. Yeah, it's it's awe-inspiring to think of how different the world would be if this statute had not been passed. I mean, we might have so many fewer birds. So yeah, hugely important statute. Can you get down to the specific section that is involved here? I think it's section two, is that right? Yeah, section two is the heart of the um, the issue in this case. And there are other provisions that come into play, particularly the criminal provisions um, and how those apply. Uh, but section two is really the heart of the statute. Uh, and that's the one that uh, essentially reads as uh, its current form in relevant part, uh, unless an except is permitted by regulations that shall be unlawful at any time by any means or in any manner to pursue, hunt, take, capture, kill, attempt to take, capture, or kill any migratory bird, any part, nest, or egg of any such bird included in the terms of the conventions. And so, as you can see, this really is an extraordinarily expansive set of protections. And that that really is the heart of what the case was about, what that means and how it applies to certain kinds of primarily industrial activities. You would think reading that that section that they really pinned it down, that this was a belt and suspenders approach. They made very clear any means, but that's what this lawsuit is all about. So I don't want to get ahead of ourselves and get into all of the arguments at once, but you can you kind of tell us in general terms what the Giorgiani opinion was and and what did it do? Because that's kind of at the heart of this case. Absolutely. So giving a little bit of background leading up to the Giorgiani opinion. So as I mentioned, this statute was passed a century ago uh, or thereabouts. During the first part of the statute's um, history, the focus really was on what were then the major threats to bird species, which really was overhunting, um, killing migratory birds in excessive numbers, Of course, many people, including me, don't believe in any game hunting, but even for those who believed in it, there was an understanding that you couldn't just destroy migratory bird populations without any limits. So the focus really was on establishing uh, limitations on hunting and kinds of hunting activities. And that has remained extremely important um, under the statute, remains important today. 
for people who are aware of, you know, those kinds of implementing measures. But over the course of time, it became apparent that there were many other threats to bird populations that were not necessarily intended to kill birds, but nonetheless had as their byproduct the killing of massive numbers of birds. And these were extensive industrial activities that, just to give some examples, because these are the kinds of things we'll be talking about, as oil companies uh, expanded their activities, they leave open oil pits or were leaving open oil pits that many birds would get trapped in and literally would drown in oil, unable to get out. Putting up transmission and power lines all over the country. Uh, birds frequently, um, if steps are not taken, fly into power lines and are killed by power lines, transmission lines. Of more recent vintage, as wind turbines have expanded across the countryside, obviously renewable energy is important, but wind turbines, if built a certain way and without proper precaution, can kill many birds. But in any event, as these industrial activities expanded, it became clear that it was not sufficient just to focus the NBTA on activities specifically designed to kill or harm or take a bird, but it was also important to read the statute and apply the statute in such a way as to apply to these other, what are referred to as, in the parlance, as incidental take of migratory birds. So beginning in the 1970s, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service, along with the Justice Department, began to enforce the statute in a very selective but nonetheless important way against certain kinds of activities, industrial activities, that would predictably, even if not intentionally, kill large numbers of birds. Um, and uh, that was basically the practice and policy for decades up until the Trump administration came along. Um, and just to set the stage for the Giorgiani opinion a bit more, uh, in the outgoing days of the Obama administration, the Solicitor of the Interior issued an opinion called the Tompkins opinion uh, that basically, uh, in so many words, ratified the longstanding position that foreseeable incidental take is covered by the statute and laid out a very extensive legal analysis as to why that was the case. Uh, the Trump administration came in and in fairly short order suspended uh, the Tompkins opinion and then under um, pressure from and lobbying by the oil and gas industry, among others, then ultimately issued um, in 2017 this what's called the Giorgiani opinion which for the first time in the history of this 100-year-old act said that none of this incidental take was covered, and it reached that conclusion by essentially reading the statute as applying only to activities that are specifically directed at migratory birds. We could get into the analysis of what that means in a moment, but basically for purposes of where we are right now, what that meant was that unless one is going out specifically with an activity aimed at migratory birds, whether it's hunting, um, poaching, something like that, it wouldn't be covered by the statute. So that none of these extensive industrial activities that had been addressed in the past, that even though the actors knew migratory birds would be harmed and killed, if those were not specifically directed at migratory birds, they would no longer be subject to the prohibitions and the protections of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Basically eliminates it. Unbelievable, truly unbelievable. So the lawsuit was planned and executed, and, and I, I think it was actually started out as more than one lawsuit, and they ended up getting consolidated, and there's a whole bunch of plaintiffs. You don't need to go into them all individually, but in general, what types of plaintiffs are there, and, and what interests were they representing? So yeah, there were three lawsuits all filed in the uh, federal court in New York, the Southern District of New York. And so two cases were filed by um, conservation organizations, one um, led by NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council, one with the National Audubon Society as the lead plaintiff uh, with the Center for Biological Diversity, the organization I now work for, um, another set of plaintiffs, along with Defenders of Wildlife and the American Bird Conservancy, and then another case filed by eight states, led by the state of New York. And so these organizations, as well as states, basically um, asserted that this Georgiani opinion was, of course, not surprisingly, flagrantly illegal in our view, and in such a way that it would not only harm um, dramatically migratory birds and migratory bird populations across the United States and indeed North America, but would also do so in such a way as to seriously impair 
the interests of the members of the organizations and also the state's interests in protecting their own bird populations. And so the states asserted standing uh, based upon the state's own interest across the country in protecting their own wildlife. And the organizations asserted standing primarily based and supported extensively by sworn declarations from individual members who said that they were being harmed by this new interpretation, including people who literally were coming across dead and injured migratory birds from activities that otherwise would have been covered but no longer were covered by the statute based upon the interpretation of the Georgiani opinion. So this was hardly hypothetical or conjectural. Uh, this opinion was having immediate and disastrous impacts, uh, including on the interests of individual bird watchers, bird lovers, people who work in, in uh, rehabilitation centers for birds, just dramatic, direct, um, empirical impacts uh, that we could point to you know, for standing purposes and also just to reinforce the critical importance of pursuing the litigation. Yeah, I can think of really anybody who cares about animals or birds or just the world in any way who wasn't injured by this. Uh, but, you know, that would be a bit conjectural, I guess. But these harms were were really dramatic in so many ways. I just want to take as an aside before we get into that, as a practical matter, when there are so many plaintiffs in these different cases, who does what? Who's in charge? Who decides what arguments you're going to bring? Who does what kind of work? I've never done that kind of litigation. I imagine a lot of people listening haven't either. So I'm just curious. I used to work at the court, so I would just look at the case. It would arrive on my desk, the brief, and and I would be like, just accept the fact that everybody had worked this out. But how does that actually happen? Well, it's a great question. And it's one that's really important because you see these very large scale pieces of litigation, especially these days, when we've had major reversals of policy on wildlife and animals and environment, you know, how do these things get done? And I would say that there's no, you know, single answer. But what I could say is that in this particular case, it has been pursued in a, in a very coordinated and effective fashion, uh, because we had, as I said, three cases, um, and I was actually lead counsel in one of the cases but also working with some other great lawyers for the organizations, Natural Resources Defense Council, and a fellow named Ian Fine, really wonderful attorney, was was working on that case. And we had a number of great folks working um, on the state side. And unlike some situations where these things can get overly complicated or difficult, I think this case was actually a model of how we were able to all work in a very effective, coordinated way, especially once it became clear that the judge Judge Caproni in New York was not surprisingly very interested in having these cases pursued in as coordinated a fashion as she could, and that's why the cases were consolidated. What made it slightly more complicated was the fact that in our case, the one set of conservation cases uh, that I was involved in, uh, we had a facial challenge, uh, which is the one the judge ultimately ruled on, just saying the entire Georgiani policy was illegal, but we also included two what I would call procedural challenges. One was an argument that um, the notice and comment violation occurred when the Giorgiani opinion with literally no advanced public comment. As I mentioned, the oil and gas industry <laughs> was tipped off about the policy and actually had a huge amount to do with it behind the scenes, but the rest of the public had no idea this thing was, was even coming. So we had a claim along those lines, and we also had a claim under the National Rental Policy Act in our case because they did know analysis under that statute, commonly referred to as NEPA. The judge ultimately wound up not having to reach those issues in any kind of substantive way, but we had to sort of work through all that. And it was really just a matter of divvying up responsibilities, um, uh, drafting the brief in a coordinated way. Um, and as I say, from my vantage point, it really worked out as a sort of model way in which people can come together for the common purpose of prevailing, you know, on a critically important case. And really nothing concentrates an effort like this than having a common foe. So I think that has a lot to do with it. it, had a lot to do with, you know, getting everybody on the same page in the same wavelength. Yeah. A lot of people these days feel they have a common foe. So yeah, seeing a lot of that. All right. Getting back to the case, that's really interesting. And I'm really glad I asked that question. The cause of action is under the Administrative Procedure Act. Is is that right? And is it true that the Migratory Bird Treaty Act does not have a citizen supervision? Yes, critically important point, which really sets this statute apart from um, many others. 
that people are familiar with. Uh, you know, by contrast, the Endangered Species Act, a Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, those have their own citizen suit provisions. Um, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, particularly because it was enacted when it was, when we didn't really have the idea of citizen suit provisions in mind back at that point, really could only be enforced by the public through the Administrative Procedure Act. So our claim was challenging uh, the issuance of the Giorgiani opinion as violative of the APA and particularly as being arbitrary, capricious, and abuse of discretion or not in accordance with law um, pursuant to the APA. Um, so that was the basis for the claim, both substantively as well as these other procedural aspects of the uh, issuance of the opinion that I mentioned a moment ago. That's a that's a high standard. I think that you easily met it in this case, but arbitrary and capricious is not the easiest standard to meet. All right. So before we get to summary judgment, which is really what I want to talk about, there was a motion to dismiss resolving some of the preliminary issues, one of which, of course, was standing. And you've already talked about injury and and uh, how the plaintiffs, the varied plant, well, the, the organizations and the states kind of separately established their injury. But can we talk a little bit about the other aspects of constitutional Article Three standing, causation and redressability? Because I think it's kind of kind of interesting. Like, how did the plaintiffs establish that if the agency took away this criminal liability, I believe there was criminal liability, the issue would be resolved? And these birds would be protected. Yeah, really, really important aspect of standing in this case, because as you point out, this is a statute which is ordinarily enforced through criminal means. And of course, as people may know, um, some, but if they don't, it's an important principle that ordinarily the federal government's enforcement of a criminal statute is entirely its own prerogative. And that's actually true about state and local governments as well. So, um, and there's a, a Supreme Court precedent, which many people are familiar with, which for the most part makes it difficult, if not impossible, to challenge the federal government's discretion in enforcing a criminal statute. So one of the issues we had to contend with in this case, which bore upon the causation or addressability issue for sure, but certain other aspects of just, justiciability as well, was uh, how can you show an injury when the federal government is not obligated to enforce a criminal statute um, and claims it has huge discretion in doing so in any event. And we were benefited tremendously in this case by the government's position. They didn't come in and say, oh, we continue to agree that the Migratory Bird Treaty Act you know, covers these kinds of incidental takes. We simply have decided we're going to exercise our enforcement discretion in a certain way. That would have been a much different kind of case. Instead, they came in and issued an overarching legal determination that incidental take simply was no longer covered, that unless the activity was directed at migratory birds, then all potential violators were completely off the hook. Um, and that actually was critical to the causation and addressability issue, because essentially uh, what they were saying was that all these actors could now go out and act with no concern whatsoever for migratory birds. And we could point to that legal, that sweeping legal determination as the source of the injury. And that is really what the judge ultimately ruled. She said declaring conduct to be lawful that had previously been considered unlawful clearly was linked to the injury to the members of the organizations because it would essentially liberate and, and in fact, more than liberate, incentivize private actors to go out and engage in conduct that would therefore harm members of the organizations as well as the state interests in protecting their own wildlife. And so by virtue of the way in which the opinion was basically put together and the underlying legal uh, analysis, uh, that opened the door to causation and redressability arguments uh, that became uh, you know, critical to our ability to establish standing and why we would be injured by a new declaration of what the statute covers and does not cover. That's really so scary. Do you think they did this just just because they didn't think it through? Or were, were there other benefits to them arguing that it was just a legal reality that, that this wasn't covered, this wasn't subject to any criminal liability? If they had argued it the other way, would, would there have been harms to them or did they just get it wrong? Well... <laughs> With this administration, I always sort of 
have to scratch my head in response to questions like that. Um, <laughs> exactly. But without going too far afield and sort of making more broad comments about why this particular administration has acted the way it has, what I would say is I think part of what they were trying to accomplish was locking in a legal position that if they had simply adopted an enforcement approach, you know, exercise of discretion, that, of course, uh, becomes much easier for a subsequent administration to reverse course, course on. And that happens all the time. I mean, administrations come and go and they have different enforcement emphasis. But if you basically try to lock in a legal interpretation as to what the underlying statute means, that, of course, A, makes it more difficult to reverse, arguably, uh, and B, provides a level of certainty to the industry that otherwise would be lacking. And I think actually that's the critical point here. If you look at it from the vantage point of what their interests are, uh, their interests are doing the bidding of the industry lobbyists that were asking them to put out this interpretation. And those interests are most easily met or certainly most reliably met by giving them total certainty as to what the statute does or doesn't cover. And so if you really want to assure industry actors, you don't longer have to worry about spending money on uh, putting covers on oil pits so birds are not trapped. You no longer have to worry about putting on you know, bird diverters on transmission lines so birds you know, don't collide with the transmission lines. The way you accomplish that is by assuring them that your conduct is simply no longer subject to the law. So I think that had a lot to do with the way they, why they framed the opinion the way they did. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because the industry actually has to make in investments to comply with this law. So they would want a reliable uh, future to depend on that their investments actually had to be made. All right. The other two things in the motion to dismiss was whether the Georgiani opinion was a final agency action and whether the case was ripe for judicial review. Can you just briefly go through what the issues were there? Yes. So the argument that was made by the government was that the Georgiani opinion was was merely an opinion that it had no it could not be challenged as final agency action under the Administrative Procedure Act uh, and was not ripe for review because it was merely an opinion by the solicitor of the Interior Department, not the kind of final agency action such as a binding regulation that would normally be subject to judicial review. And the response to that, which the judge accepted, was that clearly this opinion not only was considered to be binding, and, and if you look at uh, the Interior Department's own procedures and policies, solicitors' opinions like this are considered to be binding upon the entire uh, Interior Department, and particularly the Fish and Wildlife Service. But in addition to that, it was being treated as binding. Uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service itself had issued a guidance document which instructed all Fish and Wildlife personnel that they had to follow the Giorgiani opinion as a binding directive. And we had empirical evidence that, in fact, it was being treated that way. And we were able to submit sworn declarations from members and from others who basically could point to examples of ongoing impacts on birds, birds being caught in oil pits, birds being killed on transmission lines that were not being uh, in any way protected by the statute. In fact, we could point to as a result of documents we obtained under the Freedom Information Act and otherwise, that there were ongoing investigations that were halted immediately upon issuance of the Giorgiani opinion. So we were able to demonstrate to the court's satisfaction that this, in fact, was a final agency action that was binding and was having immediate and very devastating practical effects. And for that reason, you know, it was final agency action and subject to immediate judicial review. So that brings us to the motion for summary judgment. I believe the parties cross-moved. Yes, that's And uh, I just want to mention that I just absolutely love the first line of Judge Caproni's decision. It is not only a sin to kill a mockingbird, it is also a crime. I think so often people think that uh, we have moral obligations to animals, maybe, but it's a nice reminder that, we, that there are legal obligations as well, and they get to be enforced. It's not just personal choice. All right, so let's get a little bit more into the Giorgiani opinion. The court went into a, a large preliminary analysis of trying to understand how what interior, the Department of the Interior was now saying regarding how the statute should be interpreted. And a lot of it had to do with your argument 
and the other pla- and the plaintiff's arguments about mens rea. Can you just lay out that argument? Yes. Yeah, so the opinion uh, has a a discussion which the court used to sort of establish the framework for analyzing uh, the legality of the opinion. A discussion of the difference between a mens rea and an actus reus requirement. The government's characterization, at least in its summary judgment briefs, was that the opinion really did not turn on the subjective intent or the mens rea element of a criminal offense, but rather uh, only redefined what behavior was illegal, uh, that what's referred to as the actus reus. And our analysis uh, was that that is uh, certainly part of what the opinion does, but the opinion also clearly makes liability turn on the subjective intent of the actor. And from the plaintiff's standpoint, that subjected the opinion to a challenge uh, in part because even the government acknowledges that many courts had construed violations of the MBTA as a strict liability kind of offense that should not turn on intent. And so the government was strenuously attempting to maintain that when the Giorgiani opinion concludes its conclusion that any activity which is uh, directed at migratory birds is subject to the statute, but any activity which is not specifically directed at migratory birds is no longer covered by the statute, that that really had nothing to do with intent. That was simply delineating the kinds of conduct that would be covered. And so the judge sort of sets the stage for her, her analysis by going, parsing through that, ultimately saying that even if she were to accept the government's characterization of this as merely being directed at conduct, even though, again, how you can say that, you know, drawing that kind of a line doesn't bring intent into the analysis, you know, remains, I think, highly questionable. Even if she accepts the government's characterization of the Giordani opinion in that matter, nonetheless, the opinion uh, would still clearly violate the plain language of the statute and the purpose of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Yeah, and, and my understanding is that that was a really good thing for you, even though you had made this argument regarding mens rea, and it was a very compelling argument. The fact that she was saying, well, even even if even accepting that what the government has to say about this from that analysis, still you would be successful, and mens rea is not really at issue here. That was a good thing for you. At the same time, I don't understand this. I don't understand how the difference is between an action directed at birds and an action that is not directed at birds, but kills them and how that has has nothing to do with what the mens rea of the actor, like I just don't understand it. But it was ultimately a good thing that the court did not decide on that basis, even though you had argued it. Is that correct? Well, yes. From the standpoint of the plaintiffs, the crucial point was that no matter how you characterize the opinions, um, you know, distinction between mens rea and actus reus, the fact of the matter is the result, which was that all of these activities, which are undertaken with the knowledge that birds will be killed, even if that's not the purpose of the activity, could not possibly be reconciled with the plain language of the statute um, or the overarching purpose of the statute. So I think the judge set a context for her analysis that said, in effect, while even accept, you know, the premise of the government's characterization of the Giorgiani opinion as dealing only with conduct, even if I do that, the opinion is nonetheless flagrantly unlawful. So I think in many respects, that is a result, obviously, that we agree with and makes it even more difficult, I think, for uh, the Interior Department and uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service to go down this road in, in, in light of that kind of analysis. Yeah, no, it, I, I can see how it's a good thing that it's, but it, it really does perplex me, I have to say. Like, as you said, it feels like it has more to do to, with motive than with, uh, you know, strict interpretation of what a mens rea is. You can have a mens rea that isn't just intent. And if they know the birds are there, that would be a mens rea and, and nevertheless kill them. I, anyway, I'm rambling. I just don't get it. Yeah, no, I, th- I, think, I think it's a very difficult distinction to draw. And I think it highlights... Um, the, quite frankly, the lengths to which the Giorgiani opinion was going in an effort to reach a result that just really doesn't make any sense. And I think just to illustrate how little sense it makes, and the judge refers to this in the opinion itself, 
the Fish and Wildlife Service guidance document implementing the opinion uh, has this, the following you know, example of baby owls in a barn. And if one, under the opinion, destroys the barn, burns down the barn, knowing that the baby owls will be killed, but that's not the purpose of the activity. It's simply to destroy the barn. That would no longer be covered by the uh, opinion, interpretation of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. But if one were to burn down the barn to kill the baby owls with that sadistic purpose, then that would be covered. So the baby owls would be dead. The knowledge of the owls being there is the same under both examples. The only difference is, uh, as you know, as you characterize it, the sort of underlying subjective motivation. That is really, however you look at it, that outcome, you know, is utterly nonsensical. To just give you one other example of how nonsensical it is, uh, however you characterize, you know, this distinction, as the judge, uh, I think, also alluded to, certainly on our briefs, we pointed out, that under this analysis, if a, uh, owls or any other birds are in the way of a devastating activity and someone goes in to uh, get the nest out of the way, harm's way, that is a violation under the Giorgiani opinion of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. By removing the nest, you are doing an activity directed at... Oh, my God. <laughs> and if you basically you know, see the owls in their way and continue your activity, if your activity was not directed at the migratory birds and you wind up you know, destroying the nest, that's no longer a violation of the act. So helping the birds is a violation. Killing them is not. Again, we, one can uh, engage in uh, an extended metaphysical debate of the difference between intent and act. But the bottom line, I think, of the court's ruling is however you characterize it, those results cannot possibly be harmonized with the statute's language or purpose. I agree. We can't spend any more time on it. And I understand why the court, well, I, I think it's good that the court kind of laid it out, but then just said, well, <laughs> regardless, didn't even decide on that basis, said, regardless, you still lose. Department of the Interior. So let's get on to more straightforward issues because I could talk about this all day. <laughs> I really could. <laughs> so let's talk about deference. And and this is a really important point of law in, in administrative law. And probably a lot of our listeners are familiar with the law of, you know, Chevron and Skidmore and deference, but maybe some of them aren't. So you can just, can you just like briefly go out, explain what deference is and the different levels? And what happened here? Sure. So I think the kind of deference that most people are familiar with is referred to as Chevron deference based upon a U.S. Supreme Court called Chevron, which established the basic principle that when the government um, takes an action, an agency takes an action, under certain circumstances, the court will defer to the government's interpretation so long as it is a reasonable or permissible interpretation. So under Chevron, is sort of actually two steps. The first step of Chevron is looking at whether or not the particular issue of statutory interpretation can be answered or has to be answered based upon traditional tools of statutory construction in a particular way. So the plain language, um, the legislative history, if the court looks at all those things and says, there's really only one clear answer, that's Chevron step one. If the court looks at that and says, well, we may go a certain way, left to our own devices, but it's ambiguous, it's not entirely clear, then under Chevron step two, the court would defer or could defer to a answer by the agency, which is deemed to be a permissible interpretation of a statute, even if it's not the one the court itself would have come up with. But you only engage in that second step, the, the, the deference part of it, if the agency has engaged in the kinds of analysis and procedural decision-making that warrant that sort of deference. So the classic example, of course, would be a notice and comment rulemaking where the agency has not made a decision, has opened it up for public input, considers all of the input, and then comes out with a conclusion at the end that the court would say warrants deference given the nature of the decision-making and given the nature of the thoroughness of the of analysis by the agency. In a situation where that kind of process has not been pursued, which is the case with the Giorgiani opinion, no notice and comment proceedings, at least with the public, they did consider behind the scenes comment, as I mentioned, from the oil and gas industry, among others. In those kinds of situations, Chevron deference does not come into play. And the government did not even ask for Chevron deference in this case. Instead, they basically asked for a sort of secondary tier of deference, 
which can uh, come into play uh, when an agency says, well, we didn't really go through all those trappings, but we still think that our analysis is sufficiently persuasive to get some kind of, uh, afforded some kind of credibility by the court. Now, how much that it's actually deference at all, I think is open to interpretation by those who love to look at these kinds of things. But in any event, in this case, uh, the court concluded that the agency was not even entitled to that, le that level of deference for various reasons, including the fact that it represented, it, Georgiani opinion represented such a stark and radical departure from prior interpretation and practice. Uh, the fact that it really was not consistent with much, uh, we believe, the vast majority of the case law that preceded it. The fact that it suffered from internal inconsistencies, including on this mens rea and actus reus point we were just chatting about. And for a host of other reasons, the court concluded that even this lower level of, of deference, really far below the level you would get for Chevron deference, was not really warranted. And so the court was able to just go ahead and make a determination. Now, one thing uh, on the judge's own. Now, the other thing I would just say is, given the nature of the judge's analysis, even though she didn't engage in a Chevron you know, analysis, this two-step approach, I believe her analysis would have dictated an outcome under Chevron step one. That is, she clearly holds that the plain language of the statute forecloses the interpretation of the Giorgiani opinion. And given that, it's hard to see how this would have survived this approach would have survived Chevron deference, even if Chevron deference were being considered. But in any case, it was not an issue in this case because of nature of the way in which the Giorgiani opinion was, was issued and was characterized. Oh, yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense now that I'm thinking about it. All right. So at long last, we're getting to the basic question of whether, whether the Giorgiani opinion with the interpretation accepted by the court um, that it was not um, a mens rea issue was nevertheless a misinterpretation of the statute. And can, before we go in, can you just remind us of the specific language we're talking about so people have it in their head in section two? Because it's pretty, as we pointed out before, it's pretty strong language. Sure. So the statute, the, the you know relevant language says in section two, Unless an accept is permitted by regulations, it shall be unlawful at any time, by any means, or in any manner, to pursue, hunt, take, capture, kill, attempt to take, capture, or kill any migratory bird, any part, nest, or egg of any such bird included in the terms of the conventions. So that is um, the operative language that the court basically was construing, and whether that could be construed to exclude uh, the kinds of incidental take activities not directed at migratory birds, but foreseeably killing, injuring, harming them, uh, whether that was a, a reasonable interpretation of that language. I'm not sure where to start here. First of all, the court points out that the Second Circuit had not already decided this issue in, I think it's FMC Corp, because we're not talking about a mens rea requirement. So even though it feels like the Second Circuit had already decided this issue, because she's interpreting it differently, it hadn't. All right. So, but the the Department of the Interior does argue that there is inconsistency among the circuits. And can you just talk a little bit about how the how the court responded to this? I think it's particularly the Fifth Circuit that has a precedent that that seems to support the department's argument. Well, seems to support, but as the court points out, not not squarely supporting their argument, and that really is the only precedent um, that they could latch on to. Um, and I think this is a critical point here. Um, as the judge points out in her ruling, um, although the Georgiani opinion and then the Justice Department in trying to defend it attempted to portray the case law as being widely divergent and at great odds across various circuits, in truth, that is not the case. In truth, almost all of the courts that have squarely addressed the issue and in one form or another, have held that activities do not have to be directed specifically at migratory birds to be covered by the MBTA. The Second Circuit in the FMC case reached that result. The Tenth Circuit have squarely reached that result. Uh, the government had attempted to rely on cases from some other circuits, particularly the Eighth and Ninth Circuits, but those courts have not reached that result. They held that certain kinds of habitat degradation alone was not sufficient to come within Section 2. But in fact, the Ninth Circuit and other cases have 
has pretty squarely held that the MBTA can cover certain kinds of activities, um, particularly uh, one case involving uh, wind turbines. The court clearly uh, suggested, the Ninth Circuit clearly suggested that foreseeable incidental take coming from that kind of an operation could and should be covered by the statute. And so really, um, the only court that the government could hang its hat on as a basis for the Georgiani opinion was the Fifth Circuit. Notoriously, not a great circuit for wildlife protection interests um, and environmental interests, as I'm sure many people know. But in fact, even that opinion did not create, create a square conflict with the Second Circuit or the Tenth Circuit rulings. It, it was a, a case involving one of these um, oil pits that I mentioned where birds were being trapped. And the only issue actually before the Fifth Circuit, as the Fifth Circuit actually points out, was whether or not that kind of activity, and that was in the context, again, of a criminal proceeding, uh, that activity fell within the take prohibition in the statute. And as Judge uh, the J- Judge Giorgiani, excuse me, as uh, Judge Caproni points out in her opinion, the Fifth Circuit did not even actually squarely address what we regard, the plaintiffs have regarded, as the most critical part of the statute as applied here, and that is the prohibition on unauthorized killing. And that's the uh, part of the statute that the judge really hones in on. And the Fifth Circuit did not reach that issue because, in fact, for whatever reason, the oil operators in that particular case, called the Sitco case, were not charged with killing. They were only charged with taking. And again, there's an extensive analysis one can do about what take means, what it was intended to mean back in 1918 when the MBTA was passed, the Treaty Act was passed. But killing is a pretty explanatory term. (laughs) As the judge points out, you don't have to be directed at something in order to kill it. And in fact, these industrial activities, which foreseeably kill, we're talking about not small numbers of of, of birds. We're talking about many millions of birds being killed through these kinds of industrial activities. They're being killed within any rational definition of the word kill. Um, And so even in terms of the court rulings that preceded this one, uh, the judge honed in on those and said that the government's attempt to portray some kind of deep division among the circuits and in the case law was really uh, vastly overstated and exaggerated, to say the least. So the judge really dispels that. And I think there was an important aspect of a ruling along with her statutory construction analysis. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about that statutory construction analysis, because what was their argument that there is ambiguity within the word kill? Well, they had a couple of different kinds of arguments. Um, I think that, and I don't want to give sort of too much credit for the, to them because I don't think any of them deserve really much credit. <laughs> well, you have to tell us what they were, though, so we, so we can laugh at them. <laughs> I think, you know, part of their argument was a statutory construction principle. There's a Latin phrase for it, which I won't bother people with right now, but that statutory terminology, you know, has to be understood by the company it keeps and the other words that one looks to in the statute, such as take, you know, really were intended to imply a direct forms of take, like hunting, things directed at migratory birds. And therefore, you had to read the word kill, you know, within that kind of statutory context. Of course, overlaid on top of that was the government's argument that you should look at the underlying legislative history and statutory purpose, which, you know, we could get back to in a moment. But the answer to those kinds of arguments, there are multiple answers. But the one the judge, I think, uh, highlighted that is the most important was the most important statutory construction principle is that every word or concept or phrase in a statute has to be given independent meaning. And you can't read any statutory language as being what courts really refer to as mere surplusage or utterly redundant. And so that's a way of turning around their argument on itself that under their view, there would be no reason to put the word kill into the statute because take would encompass all the forms of uh, harming migratory birds in the way that the government says should be covered, hunting, you know, poaching, direct intentional kinds of take. But kill must mean something other than that. And so if you read kill to add to the statute, in addition to just giving it its plain you know, meaning, it must mean things beyond activities specifically directed at migratory birds. And so that's really the rejoinder to those kinds of statutory construction arguments that the government tried to muster. But um, you know, the judge, I think, had, had little difficulty um, dispensing with those. Yeah, no, it does seem to be a pretty compelling uh, 
opinion on it. And one thing that I particularly loved was that the court pointed out that just because the statute is broad and she acknowledged that the statute is very broad, that doesn't mean it's ambiguous. There's a big difference between broad and ambiguous. And not only is that a great point, but it makes clear that the statute is broad. <laughs> like she, like they, it, they actually, I feel like they were a bit hoisted on their own petard there. Yeah, and this is, this is actually critical and just shows the thoroughness of the court's analysis. And I think as people are familiar with the Bostock decision, which the judge cites, this very recent decision on whether the civil rights laws apply, you know, based upon sexual orientation and other ways, uh, other, you know, similar kinds of classifications, even though, as, as Judge Gorsuch's analysis in that opinion essentially said, the language is very broad. The fact that it may not have been specifically directed at those kinds of activities in the civil rights laws when first enacted doesn't mean we could ignore the breadth of the statute. It's the way in which Congress wrote the statute and the overarching purpose of the statute, um, not parsing you know, what particular legislator at that time may have thought. Um, and so Judge, uh, in our case, Judge Caproni brings that into the analysis um, and actually cites Bostock, but that followed on the heels of other opinions that people may be familiar with, uh, Mass versus EPA, which is the landmark greenhouse gas decision where the Supreme Court held that the Clean Air Act could encompass regulation of greenhouse gas emissions, even if that was not, you know, certainly the primary focus of the Clean Air Act when it was enacted. This really follows on the heels of those kinds of rulings. And it's a very, very important, I, I think, interesting statutory construction approach that you really look at the breadth of the language. You don't basically exclude clearly covered conduct by saying, well, that's not really what they were thinking when they wrote that language. That's not the correct way to engage in statutory construction analysis. And so this case really follows on the heels of those kinds of opinions, including, again, most recently and vividly the Bostock ruling. Yeah, I think the implications of Bostock, though, as you say, they're not necessarily new, but an even stronger devotion to the text. I'm just wondering, do you see this like really strong commitment to the text as particularly useful in a world where, sadly, environmental statutes, we have to think, maybe not this one so much, well, probably this one as well, but they were all written at a time that in which this purpose of protection was more popular within the government than it is today. So it's so important, given how weak the government is at this moment on protecting the environment, that the text of these older statutes is really strongly adhered to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, many of these landmark statutes were passed at a time when we had a different kind of view and, and really, frankly, more of a bipartisan understanding of the need to protect wildlife and the environment. I mean, you know, referring to the Endangered Species Act, it's really a classic example of a statute which is written in extraordinarily expansive terms. Uh, and then we have administrations come in and try to water it down. So I think I agree with you completely that this kind of approach the statutory analysis can be extraordinarily beneficial in that regard. And this this is really a case study in that, that you can't just basically, you know, water down or truncate the application of the statute based upon the whims of whatever or worse of any administration that happens to come in. Now, we have a few other arguments that in the department made, and we can go through them, I think, fairly quickly. One is a constitutional avoidance argument. And when I first read that, I thought, well, what's the constitutional argument here? Can you just explain what constitutional avoidance is? Probably most people understand that. And how that combined with a sort of vagueness argument here for the Department of Interior to make this additional argument? Sure. So, you know, this is a statutory construction principle. I mean, people think about uh, vagueness in sort of a criminal context, but it's also actually invoked um, on occasion in order to define what the meaning of a statute is. And so it's a principle that if you have a choice between a interpretation of a statute that raises a grave constitutional concern and one that does not, then as a matter of statutory interpretation, you should avoid grappling with the grave constitutional issue. Now, there's lots of debate um, in the case law and, this, and the literature about how grave a constitutional issue it has to be before you invoke the avoidance principle. Uh, but it actually turns out to be more of a red herring in this case 
than the government uh, was trying to present it as, because what are the threshold preclusions or, or preclusive principles for invoking statutory uh, constitutional avoidance is that there has to be a vague statute. It, it can't be, you can't look at a plain language of a statute uh, and say we're going to create vagueness in order to apply that principle. And the judge here said, well, we can't even get into that because this statutory language so clearly encompasses conduct beyond simply conduct directed at migratory birds. So we shouldn't really even look at uh, whether or not we can invoke a constitutional concern like vagueness because it just doesn't have any applicability where the statute is so clear on its face um, and is so broad on its face. But in any event, the judge went further than that. And I think this is a really critical point, not only to where we are now, but to where we may be heading, that much of that concern, you know, even more from more of a policy standpoint, is really dispelled by the way the statute has been applied. Uh, the government's always tried to invent this sort of parade of horribles that, you know, under this interpretation, the longstanding interpretation, anybody who drives a car is going to be subject to MBTA, Migratory Bird Treaty Act, you know, criminal liability, or anybody who has a house because birds can fly into their houses. Uh, well, the reality is the statute has never been implemented that way in the course of more than a century. And instead, it's been circumscribed through application and enforcement to situations which, again, involve these, these industrial activities, which predictably, foreseeably kill large numbers of birds. Um, and that has been the kind of um, enforcement brought by the Fish and Wildlife Service through the Justice Department. It's been what successfully resulted in uh, major efforts to get industries to adopt certain best management practices of various kinds, which can be dispensed with under this Georgiani opinion or could have been. And that really has been the historical inter interpretation and enforcement. So the judge relied both on the legal principle that the statute is clear and broad on its face, but also the historical practical application of the statute in such a way that would really kind of just eliminate this purported concern with vague application or overbreath application um, to situations that really have no uh, reality, you know, in terms of how the statute's actually been implemented and enforced. <laughs> it really is a hard argument to make when you're dealing with a statute that's been working for a hundred years <laughs> without without complete absurdity, like uh, that that makes it a particularly difficult argument to make. I think the other argument you've also like already really discussed was that legislative history shows that in 1918, they, they were mostly worried about hunting. And regardless of whether that's true or not, as you pointed out, the text here is clear and we don't need to go into legislative history. Yeah, I think two points about that just quickly. One is that the legislative history, not surprisingly, you know, focused, but it wasn't exclusive to that. There were many statements in the legislative history about the broader desire to protect migratory birds. And so even from a legislative history standpoint, now, surprisingly, you know, the government sort of picked out the parts of legislative history they were wanted to rely upon, but there were actually many other uh, elements of the history that would support or supportive of a broader design. And that really gets to, you know, the other aspect of the court's opinion, which is, look, this statute was designed to protect migratory birds. If you just take a step back, that was the overarching purpose. And that was made clear through successive treaties um, after 1918. I mean, the treaties that I mentioned before with the Soviet Union, Japan, Mexico, all of those in one form or another referred to other kinds of threats to migratory birds beyond uh, hunting. And so if you don't not only look at the statutory language, but just the overarching purpose of the statute, just undermining the law in the way that the Georgiani opinion uh, attempted to do, which is so antithetical to the overarching purpose of the law, if you just sort of look at it from a holistic standpoint, that that was really another very critical aspect of the court's analysis. And it really, it really comes full circle to her opening, her opening line, uh, you know, that you refer to, that, you know, it's not just immoral, but it's illegal. And that we have a statute whose entire purpose was to protect migratory birds that you've just completely subverted and undermined and really for no good purpose. So I think that just sort of completed the whole circle of the court's analysis. It really is uh, extraordinary what they've tried to get away with here, and which I guess, you know, they're going to be able to continue to get away with, or correct me if I'm wrong, like you you said, if they had just presented this as, as enforcement decisions, 
they probably would have been successful. So I assume for the rest of this administration, at any rate, it's not like this is going to force them to enforce the um, the act. It, they, they'll still be able to use discretionary enforcement to allow birds to be killed. Is that right? It certainly um, opens up industry to enforcement activity, and it means that what they're doing is illegal. So even aside from whether the government um, impl- you know, it initiates enforcement actions, industry actors who may have tried to rely on the Giorgiani opinion um, to claim that their activities were legal. And you know, when they're dealing with funders, for example, lots of companies have to represent they're in compliance with the law. Well, they can't do that. Uh, in terms of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, unless they're making now efforts again to minimize or mitigate impacts at the very least. So I think it does have immediate implications for how industry will view their responsibilities regardless of enforcement. Now, having said that, I'm not going to place any great stock in this administration enforcing (laughs) the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, or for that matter, any other wildlife protection law or any other animal protection law or environmental statute. But, you know, how how they proceed will remain, remains to be seen. I think that um, what I think the judge refers to that people should know is right now there's still a pending proposed regulation that was put out by the Fish and Wildlife Service that was designed to codify the Giorgiani opinion. And then the aftermath of the judge's ruling in this case, uh, the conservation groups and others have written to the administration urging the administration to withdraw that proposed regulation, which was also accompanied by a draft environmental impact statement, which, by the way, admitted point blank that this interpretation is harmful to migratory birds. I mean, they're, they're not even pretending that this would be consistent with migratory bird protection. There's a there's a draft environmental impact statement of people who are interested, which sort of just unequivocally acknowledges this will be harmful to migratory bird populations. So there's no, there's no pretense about that. But that regulation is still sitting, that proposed rule is still sitting out there. And so the big question now is what's going to happen with that? The administration should withdraw it. Anybody who cares about that issue, this issue, should really appeal to Secretary Bernhard and the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, to withdraw it. But, you know, that's where we're waiting to see what happens. Are they going to basically take the clear message from the district court that this is unlawful and should not proceed down this path? Or are they going to insist on going forward with this very ill-advised and, you know, really horribly uh, impactful approach to the uh, to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act? Wow, that's I mean, that's almost shocking. It's hard to be shocked anymore. But that's almost <laughs> shocking that they are implementing a rule that basically was just held uh, by a federal district court to be not in compliance with the statute. Uh, that's pretty crazy. Well, not knowing this administration, you know, obviously. It's hard to be shocked by anything. Yeah. But one would hope that this opinion is sufficiently persuasive that they see their way clear to, you know, spending their time and effort on things other than, you know, trying to kill as many migratory birds as possible or letting industry do that. Especially because, again, this is a law that was being, um, you know, implemented in a way that industry, for the most part, had found that it could live with. One thing I haven't mentioned that's really important is that a lot of these um, t- measures that have been taken, putting dir- diverters on transmission lines so birds see them and avoid them, putting um, coverings on oil pits, uh, other kinds of activities that have minimized, uh, you know, still many, many birds are being killed. You know, you know, I'll get back to that in a moment. But those things were very low cost for the most part. It's expensive. We're not talking about, for the most part, incredibly expensive measures. Even those things this administration decided for no good reason was too much to ask industry to do. Um, And so, you know, again, one would hope that even enlightened representatives of the various industries would would say, yeah, we can live with this uh, and we should live with it if we're going to try to, you know, comply with our basic obligations, moral as well as legal obligations to minimize our impacts on wildlife. But this comes in the context of, you know, 3 billion birds have been lost in North America, according to recent studies, since 1970 alone. 3 billion birds. We're talking about, you know, 25, 30 percent or more of the entire uh, populations of migratory birds. So this Georgiani opinion came along at, you know, the worst possible time uh, if we're trying to protect, you know, these extraordinary 
birds that everybody enjoys as, uh, and benefits from as much as they do. Assuming that, that the industry is not going to suddenly realize its moral obligation and the government is not going to like comply with that, do you expect an appeal? We don't know. We're waiting to see. They haven't appealed yet. Obviously, in light of the opinion, you know, one supposes that they're figuring out what they're going to do with their proposed rule as well as whether to appeal. Uh, and so we're just waiting to see. You know, I, I've long since stopped speculating, uh, <laughs> you know, again, as to what this administration will do, but even as to, you know, how these judgments would be made. So I, we're just, we just don't know. We're going to wait to see what they decide. Well, we'll be looking forward to hearing. I hope they don't. But uh, I know you'll be carrying on the fight if they do. And this has really been fascinating. Thank you for stopping me from talking about the difference between mens rea and, and um, motive. <laughs> I spent eight hours on that trying to figure that out and, and for getting to the rest of the issues. This has been great, Eric. Really, really great. Thank you. Sure. My pleasure. So thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. Thanks so much to Eric Glitzenstein for enlightening us about this case. And thank you also to Jen Riley and Jared Gleckel for their help in producing the podcast. In the meantime, if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Consider leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenthouse.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. And please be safe. Don't let your guard down. Wear, wear your mask, social distance, wash your hands, listen to some podcasts, and for heaven's sake, vote. Find out more about your state's requirements for registering and everything else and all of the complicated new requirements for voting, which make it actually much easier to do so. So go to vote.com if you're wondering about that.